Welcome to Green Team Speaks To, the podcast for the Paulson Institute's Green Finance Center. Hello, I'm Deborah Lair, Vice Chairman and Executive Director of the Paulson Institute. Today, I'm speaking with Kanal Khatri, Her Majesty's Deputy Trade Commissioner for the United States. Based at the British Consulate General in New York City, Kanal leads a team that aims to deliver new trade and investment opportunities that both help UK firms enter the United States market and supports US firms to invest in the United Kingdom. Prior to this role, Kanal has worked at the British Embassy in Beijing, Her Majesty's Treasury, the World Bank, United Nations, and multiple other institutions that grant him particular expertise in international trade, finance, and economics. Kanal, welcome to the Green Team Speaks To podcast. I'm so delighted to have the opportunity to speak with you today. It's so nice to see you again. Hi, Deborah. Thank you for having me. Great to see you again as well. Well, you have such a rich experience having worked in the UK embassies in the United States and in China and other places around the world, which give you really a unique perspective when it comes to trade and investment, but also in terms of many of the issues that we're talking about in the world today, the transition to decarbonization. It'll be very interesting to hear your views on these timely issues. And I thought, let's start off, you know, with an easy question, China, drawing on your experience as having been a diplomat working in China on behalf of the UK government. Last year, China was the largest exporter to the United Kingdom, and so soon after Brexit, during COVID, as we're seeing a changing geopolitical situation in the region and in the world, how will Russia's invasion of Ukraine and China's position on it have an impact of the UK's view of trade with China, if at all? Thanks, Deborah. Uh, it's a nice softball question to start with. Um, I I think the thing to say up front first is obviously our empathy and our concern is with Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian government, and condemning the absolute strongest terms, the acts taken by Russia, by Putin, by the Russian government to invade, uh, totally unjustified invasion of Ukraine. Um, you can see there, from the response that the UK has taken, the US and other European allies and partners, just how unified that response is to the Russian invasion, unprecedented sanctions of people, of individuals. So in the UK, we've never seen anything on this scale. We've sanctioned over a thousand individuals now. Also sanctioned around 500 billion of assets under management, under Russian financial institutions, as well as the central bank. And all of that has had a really devastating and crippling effect on the Russian economy, but there is more to do. And the prime minister has said so as of today, there is more to do, not least we see with the Russian withdrawal from some of these cities, just how horrific some of their actions have been and to the point of the prime minister saying that actually these may look like genocide and we are leading the way to force through war crime trials as well. I think that bigger question is, this is obviously a profound moment geopolitically, profound moment for Europe, our relationship with Europe, our relationship with Russia, and then beyond that as well. China was one of the very few countries not to condemn the Russian actions in the UN General Assembly. That was a very otherwise strong vote uh, to condemn Russian actions. How that plays out and how the Chinese government what they will do next, that is for the Chinese government to decide, but it's very clear where we have been in terms of this is very, very clear, very clear demarcation of an utterly unjustified action by the Russian government. How the politics will unfold um, is very much dependent on what the Chinese government does next. Uh, we've seen the US government have been very clear and candid in terms of setting those you know, markers with the Chinese government in terms of what they may or may not do in support or not of Russia. 
I think if you take a step back and just look at the macroeconomic impact and the trade and investment impact, number one, first and foremost, is clearly the energy markets impacts in Europe and the UK. Uh, for the UK, we have already said we are going to end any reliance and import on Russian oil by the end of the year. Uh, gas, we're actually only a very small amount is dependent on Russia. We don't have direct pipelines and about 4% of our gas uh, could be linked back to Russia. So energy is number one. We're seeing the spikes in you know, energy markets. We'll discuss later what that means for climate change, renewable energy and, and that market. But it is a ripple effect that's happening across all industries. First and foremost, their supply chains and their exposures to Russia. But this is, this is another escalation of what we've seen through the pandemic, that every single company is considering supply chain resilience, market resilience, risks of exposure, and how would they be impacted by exogenous shocks um, or you know, really dramatic events such as the Russian invasion. So I think what we are seeing and what I see when I speak to businesses is there's a real acceleration in how they think strategically about global footprint, global exposures, risk and reward of doing that. And I think this makes it even more acute as well. Well, really insightful response there. And, and since you mentioned the United States, let's talk about that. Obviously, the United States and the United Kingdom have long had a special relationship. But sometimes, as we have with friends, the trading relationship can be tense. We see that even with our biggest neighbor and longest ally, Canada. And so how do you see with Brexit the changing relationship between the United States and the UK when it comes to trade and investment? Good question. And I have to say the short answer is the trading and investment relationship uh, is extremely strong and extremely positive. And for example, let's look on the policy front. There's actually been a huge amount of progress recently. We had last year an agreement um, around the Airbus Boeing dispute. We had an agreement, I think as of two weeks ago, around Section 232 and the lifting of tariffs, aluminium and steel, both incredibly positive. And over the last year, actually, we've had uh, the removal of trade barriers when it comes to British lamb and beef into the market. So we can actually see there have been very positive, significant steps on the trade relationship and the policy front. And actually, when you look at the numbers as well, and especially when you look at the numbers of US investment into the UK, they have really rocketed in the last few years. And landing our transition agreement with the, with the EU was a really significant moment for generating confidence in the US market. There was just certainty of where we were going, what the relationship looks like. Yes, a few things that need to be ironed out, but it really unlocked a really spike in confidence from US investors. So now I, I speak to US investors. Um, our team also covers US and Canada. So my colleagues speak on the Canadian side. You can see there's a real strong appetite to invest into the UK. We're not relaxing on our role, laurels for that. You know, it's a very, very competitive environment. You speak to a US investor, they have enormous options across North America before they even get to Europe and the UK. So we have to be very much on the front foot to put the pitch why the UK, why we're competitive, our talent um, across all of the UK as well, not just the Southeast and London. And again, on the energy transition and climate change, we have set out a very bold plan the Prime Minister's 10-point plan for a green industrial revolution, trying to catalyze 12 billion of investment into the UK. We're very forward-leaning on ruling out, for example, diesel cars and rolling out electric vehicles and charging, hydrogen power, wind power. We want to be at the very forefront of this industrial revolution. And we are speaking to US and Canadian investors to try and draw their capital in to actually realize that as well. 
Well, I'm so glad that you raised the green point too, because we have seen the UK play a leadership role, not just with Glasgow, but well before that. And certainly as we look back, even to your time in China, you were really there at a time that green finance was just starting to take off, just starting to take off in China with their uh, presidency of the G20 and the UK was a strong partner with them and looking at how we could use market mechanisms to really spur on investment in new types of financing methods, new types of opportunities. And since those, since those days, I know the UK and China have, and, and rightly so with China as the world's largest carbon emitter, cooperated on many different issues, including just jointly launching, I think the Green is Great initiative and having sustainability as a core part of your bilateral dialogues. As you look at how far we've come, how would you sort of rank it and what do you see as some of the opportunities ahead for cooperation with China on this front? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And we've both been involved for a number of years and there are key people in China who've done a fantastic job to really drive this agenda. You know, Professor Martin is one of them. We were there in the early days when green and green finance was barely a topic of conversation with any of the government or regulators. And, you know, it's a sign of how the Chinese government operates. Once it's got its claws into something, it's totally accelerated. I think some of the successes have clearly been in the establishment of green taxonomies uh, in China, in the EU. In the UK, we will be issuing a green taxonomy as well later this year. The US is a bit further behind, but there's clear political commitment now to try and develop that and get there. So yes, it's a bit of a hodgepodge. Yes, there are differences. And yes, they'll always be wrangling over, does this count? Does this not count? But to even be there is a success. It's, you know, to have got that far is very welcome. I think the other thing, and this goes for China, UK, EU, Asia, and US, because it's driven by the markets, is there's a much deeper understanding of the attraction of investing into green. This is a wholly new emerging asset class, and those who get it right will reap the rewards from doing that. So there is that attraction element, there's the rewards, but there's also greater awareness about the risk of not investing in a green aligned or a green transition aligned portfolio. So there's much more awareness around stranded assets and the exposure of assets to climate risks as well. So the nature of the debate today is so different to what it was five years ago. We're beyond the foothills of convincing why this matters, why this is an issue. But we do have go, to go much, much further in terms of actually defining and classifying and releasing the data such that you can build models, indices, asset class products so you can easily invest in green and know that you're not greenwashing, that you are actually substantively making an impact through your capital. And I know as obviously a government official, it's so important to get that regulatory and policy structure right so that you can find ways to stimulate investment. And one of the things at the Paulson Institute that we're particularly excited about too, though, is the business of climate. Mm -hmm. And as we look at what the opportunities are, you mentioned Dr. Ma Jun, and I was using a statistic recently quoting Goldman Sachs, that they saw that the opportunity in China for environmental goods and services was about a $16 trillion opportunity it could be really a driver of economic growth and job creation up to 40 million jobs over the next decade. And he stopped me and corrected me and said they'd done their own calculus in China and determined it was probably a $22 trillion opportunity. I mean, whatever number, these are huge numbers. And certainly we see a lot of private sector money out there looking for new innovations and opportunities. It seems like the UK really is going to be at the forefront for some of that, complicated to the United States as well. 
where the biggest commercial market for these opportunities is going to be China. Hopefully we can find a way to cooperate in these areas, yeah. even though obviously as, as businesses, we may be competing, but with the three countries, at least to find a way to cooperate when it comes to these new technologies to make sure that we're all benefiting. No, I think that's absolutely right. And we all have to be alive to the sensitivities in doing business with China. Uh, you and I have worked there many, many years and we know it's always complex, it's always complicated. And it has become more so in the last five years as well. But at the same time, Chinese economy and its health and its growth is critical to global economic prosperity. It presents and it provides enormous opportunities to UK and US and other businesses as well. And there are areas of mutually aligned interest and climate is one of those. It's very difficult to argue why insulation technology that is successful in the UK US could not be deployed into China and with global benefit. If you have better insulation across you know, Asian old buildings, you cut energy use. So there are very obvious areas of cooperation and collaboration. The UK, you're right, you know, this is critical and core to how we actually build back after the pandemic. And there's a similar challenge here. How do you actually support economic growth, which delivers shared prosperity? but also sustainable prosperity through that climate and green lens. And we see some fantastic technologies coming out from the UK just this week. Fusion technology is top of everyone's mind. You know, will it finally come and deliver as it's promised? There's one company I saw, First Light Fusion, who we've worked with before. They've actually had success in demonstrating the actual ability to deliver fusion technology on very small pilot scale as well. But that's very exciting. And in the fintech space, where the UK has long been strong, uh, I'm talking to and speaking to a number of amazing technology companies who are deploying finance along with technology to, to deliver green output. Uh, one of those companies is called Minimum, and they, they are really hitting on a big problem, which is so much of green focus has been on public markets, understandably, but you come to the US, you just forget how much of this market is in the private space, just how enormous the private markets are here, and how little they have been drawn into this debate to actually come up the educational curve, what it means to actually disclose green, what it means to adjust your, your product and to adjust your way of operating. So this company, Minimum, it's a sort of turnkey solution. Put in the numbers, like an accounting ledger, you can see your carbon footprint. There are many other firms doing this as well, but that's absolutely critical to getting the entire economy onto a greener path. Well, as you were saying earlier, it really is a new industrial revolution, but just with providing green solutions, it's just fascinating. And I think one of the interesting things about FinTech, certainly we've seen this in China, is it's not only the new technology, but it's a new means of delivering green opportunity to people who may not have been part of the system before. As long as they have a cell phone, they can tap into that, right? And, and I think that's such a fascinating use of the technology. No, I think that's right. And, you know, climate, green transition, coupled with decentralization of technology and finance, and we've not even gone into the crypto space, it means that there is just more power and ability as you as an individual consumer to determine your own individual impact in terms of carbon footprint and climate impact, where your money goes. And it's not just E anymore. Sustainability has become so much more the S as well as the E. And I think it's fair to say governance has been there for a long time. Investors have cared about governance for a long time. But it, that consumer savers investor power is growing and it is reinforced by the use of technology to give you the means to allocate how you wish. So I'm, I'm expecting we'll see you know, even faster growth in that space. Again, not just in the green and climate space, 
there is so much happening in the social space as well and what a socially aligned investment portfolio means and what that looks like. Really fascinating. Well, let me let me turn to another topic that we see an area where the United Kingdom has really taken the lead and as the Paulson Institute, we are particularly appreciative um, having put out our own report on financing nature, looking at biodiversity and the opportunities there. The UK in the G7 took a leadership role in getting biodiversity on the agenda, certainly in the lead up to COP. We were very appreciative of the influential Descupta review, which looked at the economic case for addressing biodiversity. And we think the momentum that you have created is so important for people to see that it's not let's solve climate change first and then turn to biodiversity, that these are issues that need to be addressed hand in hand. And one, just thank you for the UK and taking action, but what do you see as the opportunities ahead to keep up this momentum? Yeah, it's fantastic you say that, Deborah. Um, so Partha uh, Dasgupta's report was, was monumental. It was a real milestone in demonstrating the economic costs and loss from the loss of biodiversity and really capitalizing on the momentum of COP26 and all the focus on climate, it was absolutely right to ensure there is a growing and equivalent focus on biodiversity as well. So the G7 was a real moment for the nature compact and, you know, aligning commitments around biodiversity. So as the UK, we have set targets on species abundance by 2030. We've also set commitments to protect 30% of land and ocean by 2030 as well. And we have allocated around three billion of our international climate finance ambitions towards nature and biodiversity as well. So there's a big element, as it is with everything COP and last year, of just delivery of those commitments. That includes that 100 billion of climate commitments from developing countries to, sorry, developed countries to developing, because there's a big portion of that that goes to biodiversity as well. I think clearly the biodiversity discussion is further behind in terms of how well developed and mature the standards and the frameworks are compared to the climate and green side. But what I, what I think is really promising is the work being led through the task force for nature-related financial disclosures. So TNFD, mirroring the history of TCFD. And I gather this year they, they released a beta framework in terms of what those disclosures would look like. So I think that's really positive that that's going on that journey. Uh, and again, it's just a reflection that investors, banks, accountants, individuals, we all want to know but we all want to have the reliable data and information that says what I am doing is delivering what it says on the tip. So it's a really important journey that we need to go on the nature-based side as well. Well, we're strong supporters of these efforts of biodiversity disclosure as well. And again, how do you, you know, we struggle with how do you turn bees and bats and other pollinators into sort of financial assets. And so it's incredibly important, this thought leadership that is coming out of the UK at this point and helping find solutions to this. So just to close, this has been such a fascinating discussion, Penal. Really appreciate you taking the time. I'd just like to ask a personal question. Um, you really have sort of lived and breathed the green lifestyle. And so are there some recommendations that you could provide to our listeners about what they could be doing? Yeah, I have indeed. I mean, um, I think we've all probably not flown as much the last few years and that is something that's going to just continue because we can obviously work on zoom and hybrid so that's an obvious case point of just how to live your life i'm sure we're all by now at that stage of recycling as well and just being more conscious about waste and food waste the other one that i have genuinely taken on board is investment portfolio and thinking how i allocate whatever it is that i own in terms of a green aligned portfolio and using the tools and the companies and the technologies that are helping us advise how we do that as well because i think ultimately 
Uh, I am a strong believer in you know, free markets, capital allocation, and a sensible investor takes into account all material factors of which climate is one of them. The other element I'm really passionate about is that social agenda and just the growth in that space. And actually, again, how do you align your capital allocation with what might be called just companies. And this week was at an event held by Just Capital at NASDAQ, and they have been an absolute force in this space to try and set the standards, you know, rank companies by their commitments to social and DNI commitments, and equally demonstrating that there is a return to investment if you get this right, and a return to growth for a company if they take it seriously as well. So trying to be more conscious in my behaviors, more conscious in also the allocation of minimal capital that I do have. Well, Kanal, that's really impressive. I mean, most people think about um, how we can encourage some of the sort of portfolio investors in behaving that way. But as individuals, certainly we can use the power of our own money to bring about change. Thank you so much for spending your time with us, um, sharing your thoughts and insights. We're very appreciative and very appreciative of the work that you're doing to better relations between the United States and the United Kingdom. It's so important at this time as we see this sort of shifts in geopolitics. And so business has always been one of the ties that has bound our two countries together. And we're glad that you've been able to help further strengthen that. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah. I really appreciate it. And likewise, thank you to yourself, the Paulson Institute. You're doing fantastic work across US, China, global macroeconomics and climate. So I'm always very happy to support you in that task. Thank you for joining us on Green Team Speaks To. To listen to more episodes and learn more about the Paulson Institute's work in green finance, please visit us at paulsoninstitute.org. See you next time.